Well, if you read fairy tales, if you read kids' stories, often they end and they lived happily ever after. I think that's why they call them fairy tales. <laughs> that's not the way life always goes, is it? Often you'll hear parents say, I just want my kids to be happy. And a lot of parents are miserable when their kids are not happy. Someone once said, parents are only as happy as their least happy child. I, I hope that's not totally true, but as a parent of three, I certainly know that that sometimes is true. Uh, when you're a pastor, when you're a counselor, when you are just a concerned friend, it's very common to hear people, uh, especially married people, <laughs> say this, I'm just not happy. So let me ask you a question. You don't need to answer it out loud and embarrass yourself, although there's always a few that pop, pops out of their mouth. Uh, what about you? Are you happy? Interesting. The, the scripture talks a lot about uh, being happy, uses more the words joy and blessed. People say, well, you know, God doesn't necessarily want you to be happy. And I really think that God wants you to be happy, but on his terms, not on our terms. Psalm 32, King David talks about a happiness that actually comes from forgiveness. He had sinned, tried to cover it up, but as we're going to see, it ate away at him. And then what happened was he came clean with God and it brought happiness, it brought joy, it brought blessing to his soul. And so the, the question, uh, the title of the sermon is really a question for you today, and it is, are you the happy one? Are you the happy one? Now, a little bit of history will help us. Back in Second Samuel chapter 11, it, it says this in verse 1, before all of what he wrote, David wrote this psalm, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle. So David's a king. Where is he supposed to be? Out to battle. That David sent Joab and his servant. Joab was the general and his servants with him and all Israel. And they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now he knew it was the wrong thing to do. He knew he did not belong there, but he stayed there. You know the old expression, Idle hands is the devil's playground. Idle hands is the devil workshop. And what happened was, many of you know the story, some of you don't, it's okay. King David goes out on the rooftop and he sees a very, very beautiful woman bathing. Her name is Bathsheba, calls her to his quarters. She's married woman and commits adultery with her and she becomes pregnant. And what they do is they try to cover it up. And one of the ways they try to cover it up is they invite her husband, Uriah the Hittite, back from the front and allow him to sleep with his wife. So he thinks that, you know, it's his child. And he says, I'm not going to do that. My men are out in the battlefield. And, and we're, we're, everybody's impressed by the righteousness of this guy. So King David then conspires to have him killed on the, on the battlefront. And, um, and so he has Uriah murdered. Now, if you know anything about David, interesting, interesting character. He, he does some of these things, and you're like, what is with this guy? And then there's other times, if you read the, the Bible, especially the Psalms, you realize that he was tight in, with God in a way that few people could say. I mean, I, I taught through all of the Psalms. I cried when it was over because I was like, oh, God, let me do it again, because I felt like I did such a disservice to it. And, and he would write these things, and I was like, gosh, this brother can write. And, and sometimes it's really hard. You teach the Bible, and you want to read a Bible verse, and somebody writes something about God, and you just want to go, huh? <laughs> right? And that's the way I would feel a lot of times with David. And sometimes you'd wonder how he could do some of the stuff that he did. And, and so about nine months, a year goes by, and, and the Lord sent a prophet to him. He sent the prophet Nathan to him, and, and he told King David a little story. He told him a little story about a rich man who had a whole bunch of lambs, and he stole a lamb from a man who only had one lamb. He's got tons. That's King David. And he steals a lamb from Uriah who only has one lamb. Then we move into chapter 12. and uh, chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 5 says, So David's anger was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall, shall surely die. 
We're always better at you know, judging other people's sin than our own, aren't we? And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, some of the most famous words in the Old Testament, you are the man. You're the guy who did this. Thus says the Lord of Israel. And then the Lord goes on to ask David and and says, "Why, why did you do this to me, David? I mean, didn't I bless you enough? Didn't I love you enough? Didn't didn't I give you enough? And then the Lord tells David the consequences. They're going to have this little baby. He's going to uh, he's going to marry Bathsheba. They had, had married Bathsheba. The baby was going to die. And in verse thirteen, so David said to Nathan, "I have sinned against the Lord." And Nathan said to David, and remember in the Bible when the prophets speak, God speaks. The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. So after committing this sin, we might put in our kind of language, King David bottled it up. He tried to hide it. He didn't want anybody to know, but the guys who brought her over knew. I guess it's one of those things you tell on the king, off with your head. And, but eventually, he gets to the point in time where Nathan comes to him. He's sent by the Lord. And, and he's convicted of his sin, which means he's, he knows that he has sinned. He confesses his sin, and then he experiences the forgiveness of God. And Psalm 32, along with Psalm 51, takes us through the, the process from, from the pain of admitting his sin uh, to the happiness and the joy of forgiveness. So we're going to just divide this psalm up into five parts, if you're, those of you who are taking notes And number one is the pleasure of forgiveness, the pleasure of forgiveness. And it says, Psalm 32, a psalm of David, a contemplation. That's actually part of the psalm. And that word contemplation there actually kind of means instruction. So David is going to instruct us in in this joy of forgiveness. And what he does in verse 1 and 2 is he gives us an, an upfront summary, very common in the psalms. And he says, blessed, some of your versions say happy. The idea is, oh, how blessed, oh, how happy is he who, and then he gives us three things here. He whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Then he takes us into verse two. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord, the third thing, does not impute iniquity. And and whose spirit, the happy man or woman's spirit, there is no deceit, no deceit. There's a, there's a true, we're going to see a true repentance towards God, a true turning to God, coming clean, being honest with God. So King David is instructing us that you and I can be happy, can, can be able to live with ourselves. As I sometimes say, you might actually be able to stand the person you look at in the mirror in the morning. Maybe not your hair, but the rest of you, you'll be able to stand by realizing that you are not righteous before God. God is the comparison, not everybody else. And by running to your heavenly Father for help. Now, notice what David says on the front end. There's no excuses. There's none. It's not like, well, that's the way God made me. You know, I'm a heterosexual male. You know, a guy has needs. None of that stuff. None of that, none of that stuff. He doesn't do that at all. He doesn't, he doesn't make excuses. He doesn't try to, try to, to rationalize it. He doesn't say that it was okay. He, he, is, he is horrified by it, but he knows that, that the Lord can save him. Augustine said this, the beginning of knowledge is to know yourself a sinner. You know, that's why a lot of people hate the Bible. Because about every third verse, the Bible tells you you're a sinner and you need God. Just to remind you in case you forgot, you, know, you go one or two verses and then there it is. You're, you're told again. And, you know, people who come here regularly, if you're a guest, we're glad you're here with us today. You're like, does this pastor ever tell people they're a sinner? I teach verse by verse through the Bible. So every third verse, I'm telling people they're sinners. <laughs> Sometimes I even interject it where it's not there, probably. <laughs> and, and so people hate the honesty of the Bible. A lot of people don't want to be told the truth. But, but God tells the truth. So David calls what he did, and it could be other sins associated. You know, when you when you start to lie or cover stuff up, there's tons of other lies that go along with it. There's tons of other cover-ups that go with it. 
And he, and he refers to it as three different things. He, first off, he calls it in verse 1 a transgression. What is a transgression? A transgression would be rebellion to God. It would be disloyalty to God. Uh, quite simply, uh, God, David said to God, Hey, I'm the king. I'm the authority of my own life. You're not going to tell me what to do, and, and I'm not going to obey you. Picture David's out there. He's out looking over the, the, the city, and he sees this woman bathing, and all of a sudden the Spirit of God would just put up, as he does to all of us and through our conscience or, or just if we're believers, through the Word of God, he puts up the no trespassing sign. In this case, he puts up the no hunting sign. No hunting. That woman is off limits to you. She doesn't, you can't go after her, but he went forward. He went hunting. And now King David says, interestingly enough, despite that, he says, two times I'm blessed. Two times I'm happy. Why? Because he is joyful because he is now right with God again. He wasn't before, but now he's right with God again. He says, because my transgression, my rebellion, my disloyalty to God is forgiven. And the idea of that word forgiven, it is removed. It is, it is carried away. And so it's like he's saying, like, the, the burden, the weight has been lifted off my shoulders. I always think of watching the kids come home from school sometimes. We live up on top of a big hill. And sometimes the bus would let the kids come off, and I'd be, or I watch the kids uh, my office is in the front of my house, and that's usually where I work on my Bible studies and, or some stuff, and I see the kids walking up the hill from the bus, and they have like two feet of books in back of them, you know what I mean, with those big backpacks, and they're like, uh, uh, and that's what it's like carrying your sin. Now, here's what I never understood. They come back with that big backpack, and I go, how much homework do you have? They go, I have none. I'm like, then why did you bring all those books home? Practice. You know? so, so I don't know why, why they do that. But it's sort of like the idea of they're carrying that big backpack of books. And, you know, the, the kid gets in the house and they go over backwards with the book when they're trying to backpack off. But it's just getting that off your shoulder. So it's like David is saying, I had that backpack on my shoulder. I had a backpack full of bricks on my back, full of sin. And when I confessed it, it was like it was gone. It just wasn't there anymore. Now, remember, this is a summary. He's going to tell us. He's going to take us through the process. Psalm 103.12 says this. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Verse 1 also talks about sin. Uh, sin is the idea of, of missing the mark. Imagine you're, you're an archer with a target. You're shooting at a target. Uh, you're throwing darts somewhere, you're, you're at a gun rage or something like that. And what is that? It means you're, you're missing God's expressed and revealed will. God tells you what to do, you know what to do, and you just, you just miss the target. Uh, you could say that David is saying, I failed to do what God wanted. I failed to live up to his ideal standard that he had expressed in his word to me. And, and, it's, and it's very sad to see people um, who are burdened with sin and guilt and falling short. Now, I'm not talking about some of you just have just these hyper-consciences, and, and I'm, I'm always working you over on that, which I probably should be a little bit more sensitive to that. But some of you, some of you are always paranoid about every little thing. Like you go, into the, you, know, you go into the sub shop, and you're like, should I have the ham or the turkey? What does God want from me? And I'm just like... Then you look at me, and I'm the worst person to look at. I'm like, are you under doctor's orders? And you're like, no. And I'm like, well, then have what you want. And then I'm like, ooh, the ham looks nasty. Have the turkey. But, but really, some of us are so hypersensitive about every little thing. And that's not, what he's, that's not what he's talking about here. That's not what I'm talking about here. We're talking about when we, are, when we have a heavy, heavy heart of our guilt and our shame for what we have done. And notice David says, oh, how blessed, how happy is the man or woman whose sin is covered. It's covered over. And to a Jew, that meant, that meant atonement. What would that mean? It would be covered by a blood sacrifice. That means that the eternal consequences of your sin are no longer there. They are no longer unresolved. They are gone. 
God has covered them over because of faith and repentance and turning to God and asking for forgiveness. He has covered them over. He sees them uh, no more. We often talk about that Jesus paid a huge debt for us that we could not pay when we turn to God. We acknowledge that we've sinned against him. We put our trust in Jesus Christ. So Jesus steps up and he says, I will cover the debt for you. In the Old Testament, Isaiah says this, Isaiah 43, 25, the Lord says, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. In the New Testament, John 1, 29, the next day, John, John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verse 2, he uses another word. He uses the word iniquity. The word iniquity, the idea behind that is of being twisted or crooked in God's ways. It means that you have gone astray in God's ways. It's taking what God meant for good, in this case, the beautiful marital intimacy that Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite uh, enjoyed as husband and wife. It's taking it and twisting it. And so what David did was he took that which did not belong to him. He took that for himself. He took another man's wife and they committed adultery. It's basically like when we say to God, um, hey, God, you know, I don't like your plan. I don't like your plan. I, I don't like the way you do things. I don't like the way you made things. So, so I have uh, my own way I want it to be. And I'm going to take charge with things myself. Some of you are probably doing that right now in your life. You are, you have just, you've just bypassed God. You're, you're doing things your own way. One simple question for you, how's that going for you? How's that working out? Now, that doesn't mean you're always going to be happy with what, what God's doing. We lost two dear, dear friends. I lost two dear, dear friends in the past couple of weeks in this church. And, and honestly, I have no idea what God's doing. So you don't have to ask me. I have no idea. Um, do, I, do I like the plan? Honestly, I think it stinks. I'm being honest with you. However, after years of being a follower of Jesus, I know that God has a plan. I know that God loved both of those brothers. They were brothers to me. Both of those brothers more than I would ever love them. I know he cared for them more deeply than I ever would. I know he cares for you more deeply than I ever could. And so I know that he has a plan. I know that he knows what he's doing. So I simply put my trust in him. And the key then is when you don't like the plan is not to go out and start executing your own plan. The key is then to sit back and to say, okay, God, I don't like the way things are going, but I'm not going to go crooked on you. I'm going to stay close to you. Yet in corrupting God's plan, this is the history of mankind, and twisting God's ways, that's what we call original sin. We've all become corrupted. But David says, oh, how blessed, how happy is the man or woman to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Now, to impute is a bookkeeping term. And what that means is is to count against So the Lord says to David, uh, or he says about the Lord, the Lord is not counting my sins against me. Now, it's very interesting here for those of us who like to beat ourselves up about our sin. Notice he, now, if we confess it, there's no need to do that anymore. But notice he uses three words here, transgression, sin, and iniquity. Now, why would he do that? I think he does it to show us this. No matter what you have done, God will forgive. No matter what you want to call it, no matter how you want to classify it, no matter how bad you think it might be, God is willing to forgive that sin. 2 Corinthians 5.19, he says that uh, the Apostle Paul talking about the cross of Jesus Christ, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing, not counting their trespasses, their sins, their iniquities against them. Against who? Those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. Now, this is one of the keys to the Christian life to understand what the Apostle Paul is saying here in one of the greatest chapters in the Bible, 2 Corinthians 5. 
he says that if you've put your trust in Jesus Christ, that God is not counting your sins against you. But that does not mean he's not counting them. He is counting them against his son on one of those, on the cross. That's where your sins, if you put your trust in Christ, they were counted against Jesus, all of them. And that's why he describes them so fully here in verses 1 through 2, because they were counted against the Lord himself. Now you say, how is that possible? How can I get that forgiveness? Well, he tells us right here at the end of, the, at the end of verse 2, when you confess your sins with no deceit. In other words, you're not trying to pull one over on God. You're not like, you know, like sometimes people do stuff and you're like, sorry. That's not that. This is true, legitimate sorrow to realize that you've maybe not only sinned against people, but ultimately all sin is against God. In other words, David is telling us that happier are those who confess their sins honestly to the Lord, come clean to the Lord because they're happy because he will forgive their sins. And as we're going to see, he will guide them on the right path. Now, here's the something that a lot of people don't get. If you're nervous about joining a community group, you know, the questions are in the bulletin. This is the answer to question one. Okay, here it is. Here it is. The Bible does not hold out forgiveness to people who think that they are okay. It holds out forgiveness to people who know that they are crooked in relation to God and how God would have us to live. In Romans chapter 4, some would say the greatest book of the Bible in the New Testament, fast-forwarding a 1,000 years, 900 years, the Apostle Paul uses this text to show us that we get to heaven not by what we do, but a response to what Jesus has done. And there the Apostle Paul challenges all the Bible readers by asking us this, are you the blessed man? Are you the blessed woman? So let me ask you, are you the blessed man? Are you the blessed woman? Has Jesus covered your sin by dying on the cross? Have you put your trust in him and has he covered your sin? And let me ask you an additional question. Are you happy about it? Are you happy about it? Now, some of you would go, well, of course I am, Pastor Jim. You should see you walk into church on Sunday morning. <laughs> a lot of you don't look too happy about it. You're dragging your tails in. And, you know, I owned a trucking company. I am really cleaning that word up. I am editing that for the radio. You're dragging your tails in, singing the songs. <laughs> right? Are you happy about what Jesus has done for you? We'll sing a closing song at the end, and we'll see just how happy everybody is. I'll be looking at everybody. No, I really won't be. <laughs> But are you happy about it? Now, if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, man, I'm glad you're here. Totally glad you are here. This is great. I hope you'll keep coming back. Do you want to hang out or something like that or ask us some questions? That's what we are here for. We have a lot of people. You can come up front here after the service, meet people, pray with people, talk to me on the way out or something like that. That is great. But um, I'm going to tell you that you can be happy about this. And I'm going to tell you to take it from three uh, adulterous murderers that I know. Number one, King David. I, I've, I've taught through his life. I've taught through his writings. He wrote a lot of the Psalms. And I'm going to tell you that that adulterous murderer, he got there. Uh, I'll tell you about another one who was a, who was a murderer and may, probably an adulterer in, in heart. Uh, what Jesus said we, we really all are would be the Apostle Paul. He wrote most of the letters of the New Testament and he was this murderous hater of Christians, and I've taught through most of his stuff, and, and so I can tell you, you can get there. The third guy I know better than both of them, and that's Pastor Jim. Pastor Jim is an adulterous murderer wretch. If you're a guest, you're like, who's that? That's me. Um, <laughs> he's an adulterous murderous wretch, and I can tell you with great joy that you can get to that place. You can find it. You can get it. So that's number one. You're like, we're going to be here till Thursday. 
uh, but the other ones are going to go much quicker because remember that was a summary. And, and number two is um, less to talk about because we're so familiar with it. Number two is the pattern of forgiveness or, or, or we could call it the pain of unforgiveness. So David is going to describe for us what it was like in that time in between when he committed the sin and the time when Nathan came to him and he came clean with God. He says, verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. So what was happening to him was he was not confessing his sin to God. He was carrying that big backpack of guilt. And what was happening to him, he was starting to have physical repercussions for it. He was actually starting to get sick of body and of soul and of spirit because he didn't come clean with God. And he, he, couldn't, he, he couldn't escape the, the, the conviction of sin. He couldn't escape the, the guilty conscience. He, and, it, and it was just paining him. And look what he says. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Now, again, dude could write. I mean, man, you, you've got to read the Psalms. You're like, this guy was so tight with God at times. And all of a sudden, that tightness with God, it's not there. That vitality of spirit, that great joy, it's not there. I mean, he is turning. He says, I'm like the drought of summer. This guy was like water. It was like Niagara Falls, this guy. And all of a sudden, when he starts to hide his sin from God, he becomes like the desert. He becomes like this drought, and he is just, he is just dry. Now, it says here this interesting word. It can be pronounced different ways. I'm just going to say it the easy word, way, selah. Now, what, what does that mean? It means to pause. One of the brilliance of God, what he did with his people, was the Psalms were a lot of the music that they sang in the temple. And so they would take the Psalms, they would put them to music, and then they would sing them for the people. Now, a lot of people have trouble remembering Bible verses, don't they? But you remember songs very easily, don't you? And so that was the brilliance of God is the people would be singing the songs and that's how they would be memorizing the Bible. And so he would say there would be a pause there. But what would be the pause for? To stop and think. To stop and pause. To reflect on what you just read or what you just sang. So the the worship leader in the temple would actually slow it down so we would think this. Is my unconfessed sin to God actually having physical, mental, spiritual, and relational effects on my life? Is this actually happening to me? We're reading about happening to another guy, but God wants us to think, is this actually happening to me? And so David recalls the time when the hound dog of heaven, that's one of the names we call the Holy Spirit, pursued him with goodness and kindness and love as he tried to hide his sin from God, as he tried to fool God, as he tried to ignore God. Oh, surely God doesn't see all of this. And here's the interesting thing, that as he did it, he realized the more he ignored it, the worse it got. It began to affect everything. Everything in his life was just not right. Now, here's the interesting thing. Even secular psychologists and secular psychiatrists will tell you that many patients will come into them with all kinds of health issues, all kinds of of, of things going on in their heads and stuff like that because of what? Unresolved guilt. Unresolved, it's the way we are wired. We are wired not to bear that ourselves. That's why Christ comes along and says, I will take that from you because you were not made to bear that. I will bear that guilt for you. Now, I know this is hard to hear, but you know, I got to have some hard to hears in every sermon. I don't feel I don't sleep well at night. But I know a lot of Christians who fail or say they're Christians fail to see the reality of their guilt. They just don't care. And really, I'm not saying this to make anybody, I want everybody to be soul-searching. I don't have many nightmares, but one of them is that people could attend this church for years and not make it to heaven. 
And so if, if your sin doesn't bother you, you should be asking yourself, am I even really a Christian? Why? Because the Bible says that our sins separate us from God. And true Christians feel the weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, of their own sin. And you know what they want to do? They want to get that weight off. And they know the way to get that weight off is to go to God and say, listen, I did this. I know it. I make no excuses. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please show me what I need to do to make it right. Friends, this is one of the greatest news of the greatest news of the world. This is the good news of the gospel. The Lord loves you too much to let you carry all that guilt. That's why he offers to put it on Jesus instead of on you. That great verse, 1 John 1, 9. If, if, what word? If, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The key word for you and for me is if. Otherwise, if we don't confess our sins, like David, we bear the guilt ourselves. And we begin to deteriorate in so many ways. That takes us to number three. The promptness of forgiveness. Look at verse five. Three times you just say my, 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 my. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you said Forget about it, Dave. Don't worry. Ain't no problem. Is that what it says in your version? I think it actually says it in the version of our minds, right? But in the Bible, it says here, he says, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. Think about that. Now, I think a lot, for a lot of us, the, the, the pause for us that comes naturally is to say, have I, have I asked God for, my forgive, for forgiveness? Have I asked him to forgive my, have I acknowledged my sin and my iniquity and my transgression? But I'm not, I'm not saying that's wrong, but I think it's actually much deeper than that. David essentially just told us this. I was slow to confess, but the Lord was quick to forgive. And I think that's what we are supposed to reflect on and pause on. On God's heart on that. Because notice it goes right for, I acknowledged I, I, you know, my, my sin, my iniquity. I confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave me. He didn't say to King David, okay, well, you go over there in a the corner and do a timeout. He didn't say, well, are you, how sorry are you? You don't seem sorry enough. He doesn't do any of that. He, he confesses without deceit. Right away, he comes clean with God, and boom, he's forgiven right away. There's no dragging it out. There's none of that. David says, when I stopped covering up my sin, the Lord covered it. And probably saying to himself, why did I wait so long? Again, maybe somebody here today, you're just, you know you need to come clean with God. Why are you waiting so long? Why are you waiting so long? Look at what the ramifications it's having in your life. And here's what I find really interesting about this. This is 900 years before Jesus. It's not just because God was willing to forgive sins because Jesus came. That's how willing God is to forgive sins all along and how quick he is willing to forgive sins. And that is the, the testimony that, you know, when in court you give a testimony, you you, 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 you know, you, you tell the truth. That is the testimony of any believer, any follower of Jesus can give. Simply say this, I confessed it all and the Lord forgave it all. And so that interesting selah or pause is, is the misery of unconfessed sin. And it's also after David is forgiven. See, God doesn't put the pause in after the confession of sin. He puts the pause, the selah, in after he is forgiven. It's like the story of the prodigal son. 
He just goes off and blows everything. And his father's waiting for him to return. And he comes running to his father. And if you're wondering about that story, we're either the prodigal son or the wretched brother who doesn't want to uh, welcome his brother back. And God welcomes him with open arms. Friend, did you know that's what God wants to do with you today? The father doesn't stand at the property and go, well, there's some house rules we're going to have to nail down before I can let you back on the property. And he didn't say that at all. No, he, he throws a party. He is thrilled that his son has returned in the same way he will be thrilled if you will return to him today or come to him for the first time. Like the paralytic man in Mark chapter 2, there's not even an exchange of words. Jesus just sees his faith. You see, here's the thing that, that God is more ready to forgive you than you are to be forgiven. He is standing. He is ready. He invites you to come to be forgiven, to be blessed, to be happy. But here's something that's really important that will help you if you grasp this or it grasps you immensely in this idea of being forgiven um, and, and confession. A lot of us grew up in an in a, in a, you know, environment where we would say something like this. Um, I went to confession. That's somewhat not a good way to think of it because Think about this for a second. Confession is not a work. Confession is not something that you per se do. Confession is an expression of our faith. Confession is an expression of our faith in a God who forgives. Confession is an expression. It is a response to the work of Jesus Christ living a perfect life in our place, dying a sinner's death on our place on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins. It's not something we do. It is a complete expression of faith in God. That takes us to number four, the protection of forgiveness. Verse six, for this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you. Now watch this. In a time when you may be found. It's always interesting that the Bible puts that. There seems to be a time when God can be found and when he's not able to be found. Now you say, is he playing hide and seek? No, we are. We are. Because there's just times when we're more attuned. Maybe right now you're thinking about all this stuff. You, 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 the people think you're being all spiritual, taking notes on the sermon, and you're just writing sins down, man. You're like, oh, I got a laundry list here. Right? Can I borrow a pen and paper too? Right? So, so we're, you're, you're just there. You're, you're, you're writing these things down. You know. And, so, and so you want to confess your sins while they're, if you will, hot in your soul. And he says, For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found, surely in a flood of great waters, that's usually a term for adversity, they shall not come near him. And so God will, will keep the floodwaters at bay as we come close to him. And then look what he says. Now, he's got to deal with all the consequences of what he's done. He's got to deal with them all. But look what he says. You are, number one, my hiding place. You, are, you shall, number two, preserve me from trouble. You shall, number three, surround me with songs of deliverance. Selah. What, what, why are we pausing? Because we know the time to come to God is when he lays it heavy on our heart. And we know that when we come to God and we confess our sins to God and we ask for his forgiveness, that in, the, in that sense, in that moment, we know that God becomes our hiding place. He's always been that, but we know it's real. We experience it. See, there's a difference between having the, the, the faith in your head and having it in your heart. When it's in your head, man, it's only as good as your brain's working. When it's in your heart, it's deeply rooted, and you know it's true. And you know when you confess your sins, just the sheer confessing of your sin lets you know that God is your hiding place, lets you know that he will preserve you, lets you know that he is surrounding you. And it's interesting, perhaps these floodwaters are the, are the earthly consequences for David's sin, and he doesn't expect, expect to be exempt from them. 
Some people say, well, I confess my sin and, you know, I still got in trouble for it. Yes, there are earthly consequences. If there's no earthly consequences, we'll just keep doing it, right? That's the way we are. Well, the crooked ones of us are, right? That's what happens. And so we have to be so careful of, of, of these things. Yet David also knows as he is loyal to the Lord, he will sense the loyalty of the Lord towards him. That's what he's teaching us here. That's what his counsel to us is here, to be godly, to pray, to seek the Lord in the moment when you know he's right there, when you can find him, you can put your hands on him, you can, you can touch him. That's the time to do it. Come up front after the service. Talk to people about that. If so, you can, you can, you can count on God's protection in the waters of adversity. You can know that you're not alone. It may be bad for you right now. It may be really bad for you right now. But you can know that he is with you. For others, he says, listen, make sure you pray now in a time when he may be found before the day of grace passes. I mean, man, that is so sobering to me that the, that the, the opportunity to be the blessed man, to be the happy man, to be the blessed woman, the happy woman of verse 1 and 2 could, could actually pass. Now, here's some really good news. If you're sitting here in the audience and you're thinking, well, it's already passed me, guess what? It hasn't. Because you care. Because you care. It's when it doesn't bother you anymore. It doesn't matter anymore. It's not that God has let it pass. He always will welcome you back. It's that you have let it pass. It's possible that your heart may be racing right now. As you, as you hear from God, as he speaks to you today, Remember, it may never be this way again. You may never have this moment again. And the, and, the, and the waters, interesting, the waters of adversity for someone who follows Jesus are, is an opportunity for Jesus to be your protection. It doesn't mean that it's going to work out the way you want it to. But it means that you're going to know that, that he's protecting you, that he's, you can, you're hiding in him, that he's preserving you, that he is surrounding in you. But interestingly enough, that those same waters of adversity for those who don't follow Jesus often turn out to be the waters of judgment because they can't go through it the same way because they don't sense God's protection. Well, that brings us to number five, the plan of forgiveness. Verse eight is very, very interesting. What happens is that, is that God speaks. All along, David's been speaking. God says, okay, David, I'm just, just take notes now. I'm going to talk. And he says, I will instruct you. What does that mean to to God to instruct us? It really has to do with God giving us insight. It's one of the reasons why we study the scripture here so carefully. I don't know about you, but I need God's insight. I need God's wisdom. So he says, I will instruct you and teach you. Well, what what does God have to teach us? Well, our natural bent is not to live the life that God wants us to live. Our natural bent is to do what we want. And so God says, I'm going to teach you how to walk in my ways. I'm going to teach you how to live a life that, that, that pleases me. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. And so he's going, to, that, where do you find that? You find that in the word of God. And one of the ways that you can be reasonably sure, obviously you have to trust in Jesus or not so obviously, but one of the ways that you know that you are a Christian is you come to church each week And you are anticipating the Lord's instruction. You are anticipating the Lord's teaching. I cannot tell you in my life, particularly in transitioning from the business world into the ministry, I was just, I was all over the page with that. Trust me. I told Pam and she goes, oh yeah, I knew six months ago. But I was all over the page with that. Right? Like God does like, oh yeah, he's going into the ministry and makes me sweat it out. How fair is that? So, but I would, I would, during the week, I'm praying, I'm reading the Bible. I'm like, God, help me, help me, help me. But I can't tell you how many times it was sitting in a church service under the instruction of God's word when it became so clear to me to know what to do. And so when you come, you come anticipating the Lord's instruction. You come anticipating the Lord's teaching. He says this, I will guide you with my eye. What does that mean? He's going to guide you. Basically, I will become your counselor. I will counsel you in the things that you need to do 
Why? Because my eye is on your life. I am watching what's going on. I'm watching you not for the, I don't want to hit you with the hammer. I am watching you because I want to show you what to do. Now, here's the problem. Sometimes we don't like what God tells us, right? Does that ever happen to any of you? Oh, you liars. Of course that happens. Well, look at what he says. Uh, Do not be like the horse or the mule. Now, I think the Bible writer's editing it using the word mule. What are mules? Stubborn. Stubborn. See, you don't even want to admit it. You're all looking down now. (laughs) You must be talking to the other people. Now, he says, don't be like a horse. Now, any horseback riders here? Excuse me, equestrians. (laughs) Equestrians. Most of you know I grew up across the street from a horse stable my whole life as a kid. And those horses can be stubborn, stubborn, just like mules. And he says, don't be stubborn. Don't be, like a, don't be like a horse. Don't be like a mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle. If you don't know what that is, that's that metal that you put into the, um, into the horse's mouth. And you, and you hold the reins, and you think, oh, I'm just like, oh, come this way. No, you yank that thing. I can ride. So you yank that thing, right, to get that horse to go where you want. Okay, else they will not come near you. So David says, if you let him, God will teach you. God will guide you. God will counsel you. He will love you. He will protect you. He will forgive you and you will be blessed. Let me ask you a question. Is that what you want? Is that what our church wants? It's a picture of a loving father watching out for his child, but he gives us a warning. Don't be stubborn. Don't be stubborn. Those of us with kids, we know. We, we have kids, and they don't always do what they're told. Well, your kids, not mine. They don't always do what they're told. Now, I'm not talking about little boys. Little boys, three years old, four years old, five years old, you tell them, uh, go to your room. And two steps, they see something, and it's a weapon, and they're ready to kill the world. Like, they, that's just like forgetting. That's forgetting. We punish what? I will not obey. That's what we go after. We go after that rebellion. And so that stubbornness. And the Lord says here, I'm a, I'm a loving father. I got my eye on you. I'm watching at you. But he says, beware Don't be stubborn. Don't follow your natural crooked bent. Follow the Lord and have a teachable spirit. So let me ask you this. This question is so, it's almost insulting. It's so easy. But it's not the way we always are. Do you want God to gently lead you? Or do you want him to have to put a bit in your mouth and yank you into his will? You're like, well, that's a dumb question. But don't we often resort to letting him put that bit in our mouth? Don't we often resort to having to learn things the hard way? And so here, here David reminds us, it's not just about forgiveness. This is, it's about fellowship with God or knowing God. Sometimes people say, like, oh, it's about a relationship with God. And then unbelieving people go, what does that mean? And we go, I don't know. But he really just told us what it was. A relationship with God is being taught by God, is being led by God, is hearing from God, is knowing about him and knowing that he knows about you. It's speaking with God. It's following after him. That's what a relationship with God is like. And that's what David is saying. If you confess your sins, you will be able to have that joyful, happy relationship with God. And the mistake a lot of us make is we think that repentance is once for all instead of realizing it is an ongoing experience. If we stop repenting, if we stop confessing our sin, we will keep missing the blessing and leading of the Holy Spirit. And then what will God do? Because he loves us, he'll put the bit in our mouth. And he will take those reins and he will drag us into the throne of grace. He will drag us in. And we'll be begging for forgiveness. And we'll be going, why did I wait so long? So the plan continues, verse 10. Many sorrows shall be to the wicked. There there are great consequences for ignoring God. But, if you have your own Bible, circle that word, but. It's like one of my favorite words in the Bible. But, 
He who trusts in the Lord, mercy shall surround him. Again, the simple thing. What do you want? The gentle, quiet leading of the Lord? Or do you want to have him just yanking you around? Now, what's the proper response to the joy of forgiveness? He tells us in verse 11. Be glad. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous. Now, who are the righteous? They are the people who have been counted righteous by God. The life of Jesus Christ has been credited to them through faith, by the grace of God. They are forgiven. They are doing their best with God's help to walk in the path of Jesus. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So David tells us to to choose to make a choice. Do you want the sorrows of the wicked or do you want the mercy that surrounds those who trust? He tells us to stop trusting in ourselves and to put our trust in Jesus Christ and watch him make our crooked lives straight. Then the Lord promises that his plan will be our reality. Mercy will surround you instead of many sorrows. It all begins with a confession of sin to the Savior who covers sin, who cleanses us from sin, and who cancels our sin. If you're not a follower of Jesus, again, I'm glad you're here. But this is the way it's going to go down. If you cover your sin in this life, or you try to cover your sin in this life, it will be exposed in the next life. But if you let Jesus expose it here and you confess your sins here and you put your trust here, your sin will be covered in the next life. It will be as if it has never happened. In the scriptures, to forgive sin is is to let go. It's like taking an arrow and shooting it out of your hand and then just there it goes. It's like letting an animal loose. It's like a prisoner set free. And so today, come to the cross. See Jesus Christ crucified for your sins. Ask for forgiveness and grace. Respond to Jesus' offer of the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. And what can be yours? Blessed. Happy. Oh, how incredibly happy is he whose transgressions are forgiven. Blessed. Oh, how happy. Oh, how incredibly happy whose sin is covered. Blessed. Oh, how happy. How incredibly happy is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Friend, let me ask you, are you the happy one? And if you're not, Come to the cross of Jesus Christ today. Confess your sin. Be the happy one. Be the blessed one. Well, let's pray.